Welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Hello and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, along with my sidekick, Rodney, who's by my side as usual. I tell you what, folks, you're in for a real treat today, as today's guest is former University of Kentucky basketball and NBA champion, Derek Anderson. But Derek is much more than just a great basketball player with a sick game and a killer smile, but also a successful businessman and best-selling author and an award-winning champion for underprivileged youth in Louisville through his work with the Stamina Foundation that provides after-school and weekend programs that teaches youth life skills based upon the principles of work ethic, self-confidence, and motivation, respect, and kindness. Derek has also been recognized nationwide for his motivational speaking, speaking to the NBA's incoming players as part of the NBA Rookie Transition Program and numerous college sports teams, including University of Kentucky and University of Alabama. And he was just inducted into the Kentucky Sports Hall of Fame for his basketball success at Louisville Doss High School, the University of Kentucky, and of course his 11-year NBA career. Derek grew up in Louisville, and he's a Kentucky guy just like me. But Derek's cloudy upbringing made him see a vision that would enable him to accomplish things that no one else thought could happen. He never accepted the idea that poverty as a young man would stop him, and he truly believed in his ability to learn how to be better than his situation. He shares with young boys and girls that whatever you put in your mind is exactly what you will receive in life. Derek made the decision to think about educating himself and also a commitment to working harder than anyone else so that he could determine his own future and not become what society expected him to become. You can find him on Instagram at at Derek L. Anderson and online at www.staminafd.com. Please welcome Derek Anderson to Living the Dream. Derek, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem, Ben. I should hire you to be my agent, man. (laughs) Sounded cool. That's right. Hey, when it comes to... (laughs) When it comes to ball players and stuff, I, I keep pretty close ties on what they're doing both on the court and off the court. That's cool, man. You know, you've got an impressive resume, and it was interesting when you and I were talking. I mean, I knew what you did on the basketball court, but what I've seen you do off the basketball court is really more impressive. So tell me about your upbringing in Louisville and how that motivated you to start the Stamina Foundation. Well, I think a lot of us grew up in, especially in the 80s, I don't some of everybody's generation is different. I grew up in the 80s, and it was kind of tough for a lot of people financially, lifestyle. As my parents abandoned me to kind of, my dad just walked out, Vietnam vet, but he had, he had issues with his life trying to put it together. My mom was addicted to alcohol, so she walked out of my life and left me in an empty apartment. And my brother ran away from home. We were just kind of in turmoil. People were really lost, couldn't find themselves. And at the age of 11, I turned 12 that summer, I found myself sleeping in other people's pl- houses, staying over neighbors' houses, wearing other people's clothes. It was just, it was one of the tryingest times I've ever had in my life. But God had a different plan for me. So for me, it was just basically finding out what's next in life. And every day I got up, I went and worked. I worked at a grocery store, carried people's bags, five or 10 cents, you know, saved up money and saved up for food and clothes. I just kept working, man, every day. And then when I went to school, it was just an amazing journey that I had, but it was motivated by me wanting better for myself. I didn't blame my parents. I wasn't looking for them. I wasn't paying attention to anything except I have to survive the next day so I can graduate high school, get a job, and take care of myself. That was my main focus from the time I was 11 years old. Through the grace of God, I stayed to it, and, and it worked out. 
it would have been very easy for you to say, you know what, I've got, I've been dealt a bad, bad luck, you know, just quit and, or not even finish school, but you stayed with it. And who are some of the mentors you had in Louisville to uh, keep you motivated? Well, from the beginning to the end, it was all school. My, a lot of my school teachers, they motivated me. They were positive. They were saying, hey, you can keep going through. They didn't know my home life, but they were always the people saying, you'll be all right. Just keep trying and I'll work with you. And having that type of motivation where you felt like, you know, people gave up on you, especially if your parents give up on you. They were really significant in my life. I, I still give teachers the credit to this day because I couldn't did these things without those those people motivating me and helping me and School teachers, you know, the lunch ladies would give me help, extra food, me being polite, just a simple common courtesy things. And I had an Uncle George who I moved in with later in my life, and he helped me out become a young man and taught me morals and common courtesy and those type of things. But for the most part, man, it was just the, the neighborhood, the, the neighbors who let me spend the night and teach me to, you know, jobs and cutting grass and those type of things. And, and then school teachers, like I said, they motivated me because they had me most of the day anyway. So most of the time mm-hmm. I was just looking at them and they were looking at me to to be a better student and they worked and, and I was so grateful for that. You ended up graduating as class president from DOS too. Yeah. So you don't get to be class president unless you're doing something right. Facts. Very true. <laughs> so let me ask you about uh, with Stamina Foundation. What was your motivation to start that? Because, you know, coming off of a successful NBA career, you could have and you have done a lot of very successful things in business, but what motivate you to devote time and resources to this foundation to help needy kids in Louisville? Uh, for me, it was I knew what I didn't have, and there's another Derek Anderson out there somewhere. And I just felt like if someone would have gave me a little more, maybe I would have had a little a better childhood. Not to say it was so bad that I couldn't smile, but it was it was a lot of stress at that age. And I was hoping I could, when I started, I was hoping I could relive to relieve some of those kids who are in my situation and also try to catch the women uh, or the dads. I, I work with both, but most of the moms, if I could help them heal themselves before they left their children, like what happened to me. So my motivation was basically my own life. And I was hoping to find someone else to help someone else not go through those things. And how many kids are in the stamina foundation programs right now? Right now it's 175. So that's, that's a lot of kids. Oh, it's a lot of kids, but we've been building over the couple of years now. I moved back to Louisville and started again, and we've been building ever since. We've been having guys come through, young men and women, and sending them to college. But they're te- I'm teaching them life skills, common courtesy, polite skills, job training, and and find out what fits you. Everyone's telling everybody to write, you know, do certain things, but everyone's not built the same. You're not going to ask the elephant to fly. You know, so you have to you're not going to ask a, a, a bird to all of a sudden go in the water and survive. Like you have to figure out what's best for each individual and make that work. So mine was making sure that I taught kids how to think for themselves, how to how to treat people, how to motivate themselves as well as motivating others around them. So everyone's held accountable and everyone's growing. In today's society, politeness is something that often goes out the window, but it's something that's so important and just you know being Polite to people and treating people with respect, it gets get you a long way. And if you need a little help along the way, someone's more willing to help you out if you've been nice to them than if you've been a, a jerk to them. Yeah, I, I do this in my, I have a stamina study guide that I put in, I'm putting in all school systems from middle school to high school, even through college. And it's basically life training, like, like I said, life skills. Like if you and I were, were walking past each other and I walk past you and you don't speak, 
and I don't speak. And then someone said, what do you think about this person? We wouldn't have anything good to say because we don't know you. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like, well, he might've been a jerk or he might've been rude, but we didn't say anything. And that's the, that's the, the image that these kids do. They're on their phones. They're walking with their heads down. They walk into a room with adults and they don't speak. So I teach them, okay, so here's a scenario. You're a millionaire. You're trying to hire somebody. Who would you hire? The person that spoke or the, the person that didn't speak? Yeah. And they would be like, you know what I mean? That's simple. People hire you if they like you, if they can trust you yep. to be who you are. And these kids don't see the value of communication as far as people skills. So parents aren't doing it. So I feel like, hey, the school teachers, parents, all of us need to work together. And that's my job to give them that. And that way we can help our kids be better because they're going to be our leaders soon. And I don't want the leader that I have to be someone who doesn't, who isn't polite who doesn't have a liquor kindness, who doesn't know how to treat your neighbor. Like that's not what I want to be my leader. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. You know, you said you're trying to get that in the school system. I guess you're already getting that in at Jefferson County Schools. Yeah, I have them all through Kentucky. I have them in Tampa Bay. I have them in California and New York. You have them in Western Kentucky, like around Paducah, Marshall County? You know where we're headed that way. That's funny. We went to Fleming so far. Yeah. Lancaster. Yeah, we're headed to Paducah. Casey County. That's where my family's from, Casey County, so. Yeah, well, of course, I mean, I'll be glad to offline give you some connections I have in Paducah, Marshall County, because I went to school in Marshall County. That's where I graduated high school and several of my friends still teach in the school system there. My mom was a teacher, too. So that's how we always had the respect for the teachers, because it's not an easy job. But like you said, if you can get this curriculum in when they're middle school age and stuff, it can set in before they become more. I guess in in the adult phase, but it's so important because like you said, your attitude dictates so much about whether you get a job, whether people like you. And if you have a bad attitude, you know, unless you're some celebrity, you can't get by with a bad attitude. Mm -mm, Not at all. They won't, it won't, it won't last. It'll, it'll become a bad image for you. And only person it'll hurt, it'll hurt you more than hurt anyone else. Because everyone will start to look at you as, as that bad seed and nobody wants to be around that. No one was prospering. <laughs> well, and I tell you what, even in the, the professional um, sports world, you look at some of these athletes who, unless they're like a star player, if they have a bad attitude and difficult to deal with and a cancer in the clubhouse, teams aren't going to put up with it either because they're like, you know what, there are a lot of people that can come in and take that role and they just don't have time to deal with bad chemistry like that. Yes, so true. Can't have bad chemistry because bad chemistry becomes bad habits. Right. On Stamina Foundation, uh, I saw you opened up a new uh, basketball arena and you do like basketball programs and stuff like that. So talk a little bit more about that program and its uh, success. Well, it's still about the same things. It's teaching the kids how to think for themselves. Like I said, life skills. I think my kids become coaches. You want to see what it's like to be an adult? Let's make see how you handle being an adult. Like you, you want to complain about parents telling you to do this. What would you do if you were a coach? <laughs> what would you do if you're a school teacher? Like, show me how you would act. And now they see it for a different perspective. So my program is basketball is the same thing as I do in my life skills. It's teaching them how to think, teaching them how to carry themselves. Like when they walk into a gym, they speak to, to adults. If the adults that I'm talking, they say, hello, how are you? Like it's simple as that. Like it becomes normal. So our program is built on, again, common courtesy, people skills, and it's going to help them in life. They're, gonna, they're not going to be in a shell where they think, oh, it's all about me because I play a basketball game. No, it's about everyone. Everyone is the same as you. It's just you might be gifted with one thing. They might be gifted with another. So our program is pretty much the same as, as life skills. And, and I love teaching them because when we have fun by playing basketball, 
I get to see those kids growing up as young men as well. And you know, those lessons, they can apply to adults too. I know you do a lot of motivational speaking. So talk to me about the groups that you go and and speak to. I cater to a lot of different varieties of people from business, corporate, because they look at you and they be like, oh, he's going to talk about sports and how this is that motivation. But I actually challenge their mental capacity and see and make them think for different situations. I always tell them, if you can't evolve, you'll eliminate yourself. So for me, it's evolve. Keep evolving. Like I don't care if you're 100 years old. Be the greatest 100-year-old person. Like Keep evolving. That's the fun part of life. Seeing yourself grow, seeing yourself get smarter, seeing yourself find out something that you didn't know. It'll always be something like, wow, that's nice. I like that. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you mentally in tune with your life. So I cater to whatever group that I'm speaking with. And I've spoken everywhere around the world, Belize, all through the countries. And and it's just basically motivating your mental habits. And, and it's fun. Like, I don't just talk. I do life. I do role playing. And that's what makes it really fun. Everyone interacts. And then you'll see how it is for yourself. And, and it's better for you to see it that way instead of someone talking all the time. But it's very interactive and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the evolving thing. I mean, just think about like when you and I were in high school and college because we we're about the same age how technology has changed so much. I mean, with me being a lawyer, I mean, we rely so much on computer programs and all all this stuff that it's like, if you're a lawyer and you don't know how to do that, you're a dinosaur. And I mean, even if you're a lawyer and you're like 65 years old, if you're not computer savvy, you, you just can't make it. And you're not able to compete with the people who are competing for the clients that you're competing with. It's just amazing. And Lord knows what it's going to be like 20 years from now. I mean, it's, but like you said, if you don't evolve, you're you're out. And same with business, like the social media advertising and all that. If you're a company that doesn't do that, unless you're from like a small town or something where people kind of talk about businesses through word of mouth, you're just not going to make it. Not at all. You don't have a chance because you'll be left behind trying to catch up. And the world doesn't play catch up. <laughs> yeah. It says move over and get out. <laughs> right. <laughs> On your Stamina Study Guide and also your Stamina Magazine, people can get that online by going to your website at www.derekandersonworks.com. Yes. So they can check that out. And actually, you're a New York Times bestselling author, so they're getting great advice from something that's a bestselling book. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's I have a lot of life nuggets in there. It's not just one of those books where you read and be like, oh, that was a good point. But no, you want life nuggets, and those nuggets can take you with you, so you'll hold, again, you'll hold yourself accountable as to doing things. You'll be like, ah, that's a good idea. And then you'll make different decisions. You'll grow like everyone else has. And I learn from other people as well. So that's, that's the great part of it. Yeah. And of course your motivational speaking and your uh, philanthropy work has been recognized on a lot of different levels. You were philanthropist of the year in 2006, Ford Men in Power Influence Award winner in 2005, numerous entrepreneur of the year awards and inspiration. So that's something where on this show, it's about living the dream and you've kind of taken it to that extra level where you live the dream by being a great basketball player, but you're going above and beyond that after being a basketball player and also helping others to achieve their dream, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's a blessing to be able to help anyone is a true blessing. And I think everyone should be focused on that. You don't have to like pay for things. You don't have to do things, but always being able to significantly help somebody and leave something besides your name. I always, my quote is leave more than your name. Mm -hmm. Like when I die, somebody's affected by the things that I've done. 
not just because not because of who I am, but because of the things I've done. And that's what motivates me to keep moving forward. Mm. No, that's very impressive. And, you know, before we start talking basketball, because I know I told you, I said, once I start talking basketball, I may never stop. <laughs> but you've been very successful in the entrepreneur world. Tell me a little bit about some of your projects that you're most proud of and some of the things you have going on right now. I think my stamina study guide is what I'm most proud of, knowing that I'm getting it in the school systems and I'm touching a lot of people and everyone's kind of gravitating to it and, and, and learning how to better our, our future leaders. I think that's been my biggest motivation is seeing how that goes. I love the fact that I can teach young men how to be better men as far as sports and academics and in life. So I'm excited about that. That makes me feel like I, I have a purpose in life now, as opposed to 11-year-old who didn't have any idea what his, life, his next meal was going to be, to now I'm able to help other people graduate college and, and, and f- fend for themselves and, and also their family. So the awards, everything about it, those are my, my greatest accomplishments is, is leaving something behind for others to, to, to help off of. Now, if you're um, giving advice to somebody who wanted to start their own business, what tips would you give them? I think research, study, and do it with fun. Do it with passion. When you start to get frustrated and angry, your emotions take over and you make the wrong decisions. It's like road rage. There's plenty of times you just get upset, but then all of a sudden you make the right decision and now you're not in an argument. You're not here. The stress isn't keeping you bottled up. So I would just tell them just to do what you love to do and make sure you stay focused on it and do it. And again, do it with fun. Do it with a passion that you know what, it's going to be better one day. And that's what you wait. You work to get better and you work to have fun. Yeah. You know, like the old saying goes, it's like, if you love what you do, you never work a day of your life. But I think, I think that's a true statement if it's something, but everybody works to a point where you're like, man, do I really want to go? There's NBA guys who are stressful about being in the NBA. The money you make, all of that still doesn't matter because it's a job. But again, your, in, your internal motivation has to be something that you find. Like when I get upset, I would watch Sanford and Son, so I would laugh and joke my way from away from the pain or the anger. So you have to find an inner peace or inner sanctuary for yourself. Yeah. Man, I love Sanford and Son. That, you know, the, growing up, because I was born in 77, but, you know, all those like great 70 comedy, 70s comedy. Yeah. <laughs> comedy. You had Sanford and Son. You had, of course, that great theme song, too. Uh, you had the Jefferson, Jed. Gosh. Yeah, Andy Griffin show. Yeah, everything on. was like then Lone Ranger shows would come on. Like I like Different Strokes with Gary Cole. Different Strokes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. One Day at a Time. Yeah. Like there were so many different variety shows that you had that you never even paid attention to race. You just thought about it as a funny show and you laughed and you and you kept going. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to transition to basketball now. So you're a Louisville guy, top player at Louisville Doss High School, player of the year, your region, which is the sixth region. How'd you end up at Ohio State being a Louisville guy? It was ironic because. I always liked one of my favorite players was Jimmy Jackson. And then I watched Steve Smith who played at Michigan State. But I never thought I'd play in the Big Ten because my whole life I grew up a L fan and I watched Kentucky basketball. So as a kid, you were just like, well, man, I'll never see that conference. But it was good to see it. And and then I asked Coach Denny Crum, who was University of Louisville's head coach at the time, if he's going to redshirt me. And he didn't call me for a whole week. His assistant coach said they would call, they would call. And because they had sent the scholarship, and I was about to sign it, but they never told me if I was going to redshirt. So Friday, Randy Ayers, head coach at uh, University 
uh, the uh, the Ohio State University drove down and told me he would love for me to play on team. Jimmy Jackson's leaving, and he told me I could come. And I was like, I'm on my way. So I signed that day to Ohio State, drove up the next day, did my press conference, and came back to Louisville. And everybody was like, oh, how come you didn't go to Louisville? And, and I'm like, I'm not dealing with a guy who doesn't call me back. And I felt like that was something. And so my storyline was I told all the other colleges, even Coach Patino, hey, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to Louisville, but thank you guys. And and life has it. Things happened. Things changed. And I went to Ohio State my first two years. Yeah. And, of course, I mean, you had some good numbers as a freshman, averaging 10 points, three rebounds, and three assists. I know Lawrence Funderburk was on that team. Yep. I guess he was on the team as a junior your first year and a senior your second year. Then your sophomore year, you upped your score into 15 points a game, five rebounds, and five assists. I remember that was a year that Ohio State played Kentucky in the Maui Classic. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that game, and I was like, dang, how'd Patino let this guy get out of Kentucky because you lit us up? I mean, yeah. Kentucky won the game, but I was like, man, this Derek Anderson's guy's lighting us up. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's funny because – Everyone saw me. They was like, well, I thought he was going to Louisville. How did he get here? Like, that was the whole thing. People thought I was already committed to Louisville, which I was, which I told them I was. But, of course, that situation happened. So they were like, oh, man, he's here. And when I played against Kentucky, I knew most of those guys. We were in a McDonald's game together. I knew Roderick, Tony Delk, Walsh McCoy. I knew those guys. So I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. I just played hard and played well. And a lot of people remember the dunk and the 23 points. And it was fun. It was good. Yeah, that was a fun tournament because one of my favorite moments in Kentucky basketball history was we were playing Arizona, and they had a really good team with a backcourt of Damon Stoudemire and Khalid Reeves mm-hmm. and uh, Lute Olson. I mean, we just barely won that thing because it was a last-second tip-in by Jeff Brasso. And, I mean, I remember I taped that game. I taped, like, all the Kentucky games, and I took that to, to class, and I, like, we put it in the VCR, which that tells you how old I am. I'm talking about VCR tapes here. VCR, yes. I like me. <laughs> and anyway, I'd play that Brasso tip in over and over. I had a physics teacher who was kind of like a, a bland guy, kind of a dry comedy. He's like, what do you know? It went in again. <laughs> but that was a good Kentucky team that kind of, in a way, under they underachieved once they got to the tournament because we got lost in the second round to uh, Mark. No, who was it? It was – no, it was Marquette. So that was a team that had, like you said, Roderick Rhodes, Tony Delk as sophomores. That was McCarty's first year. They had Travis Ford as a senior. Mm-hmm. So why would you decide to transfer from Ohio State, and how would you end up at Kentucky instead of going to Louisville? Well, what happened was I tore my left ACL up having a great season, tore my left knee up, so I was going to have to sit out the next year anyway. And I was thinking about, like, man, I got to sit out. And then some problems happened with some of my teammates, and they were getting suspended and expelled from school. One guy, a couple guys transferred, a couple guys got expelled. So I was like, oh, man, what's going on? And then I found out they might go on probation, where they did, for illegally recruiting a guy. And I was like, man, this is way too much. Because I literally loved Ohio State, didn't want to leave. But when I found out all those things was happening, I was like, man, I got to go. And I remember playing against Kentucky, how those guys played, how aggressive they were and open offensively, and I loved it. I reached out, I said I was transferring, and Coach Patino, actually he was the second guy to call me. Jim Herrick from UCLA called me, and then he called me. It's pretty unique. So, Yeah, well, you don't want to go to UCLA. we got to catch them in some titles. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> we're, all, we're almost there. <laughs> yeah, but you know what's interesting, though, is, I mean, UCLA, they, they were pretty top-notch at that time, and they won that 95. They won it the next year. That's why I was like, no. Yeah. 
I could have went there. <laughs> with Ed O'Bannon and um, gosh, who else was on that team? Ty Sedney, wasn't Ty Sedney the point yep, guard? Him, I think the O'Bannon brothers, Toby Bailey they had a really good team. Toby Bailey, yep, remember him. So, well, let me ask you this though: when you were wanting to go to Kentucky, I mean, this at that time when you were making the decision, I mean, they had Roderick Rhodes, they had Tony Delk there, they had Jeff Shepard, so they were kind of loaded at the three position and the two position. Were you kind of worried about some playing time? Because ultimately Rhodes transferred, which we didn't, you wouldn't have known at that time. So did you think that's a little bit of a risk? Or you're like, hey, you know what? I know I'm better than those guys anyway. They're just going to have to sit on the bench. Yeah, because I played Ohio State. When I was Ohio State, I played the point guard, two guard, and three guard. Mm-hmm. Like if that's why my assist went up, like I would run the point guard against some of the best point guards. So I was all over the place. I could do whatever I wanted. So it was pretty much easy for me. I was like, well, hey, I'll get some playing time. I have to sit out. I was looking at some of the guys leaving anyway, so I was like, "Yeah, I'll be fine." Yeah. Again, I I played against them, so I know I could I could I could score on them in a game, so I know practice wouldn't be as hard. But I knew they were talented. And I know they were pushing me as well, so it was a great it was a great adjustment for me, and I I felt comfortable enough that I could play in that system. You know, let me ask you this: I know you were sitting out in, on the '95 season in the Elite Eight in that tournament. An NSA tournament. We played North Carolina, and that was a North Carolina team that had uh, Rash- Rashid Wallace and Jerry Stackhouse. And we got off to a great start. I mean, Walter McCarty was playing fantastic, and they there was a, a fight, and it was with Andre Riddick and Rashid Wallace. And the referees called a technical on Walter McCarty, which McCarty was like breaking it up. And I got so mad in that game because when they went, I mean, we were we were playing great. And Patino said going into the game, he was going to make it physical on Rasheed Wallace because Wallace didn't like the contact. And, of course, he could get out of the game mentally pretty easy with his emotions. But I was like, the referees looked at it on the monitor, and they still got it wrong. And I was like, what were you guys thinking on the sideline over there? I wasn't there. I had to sit back because I sat out. But seeing it was incredible. I was like, this can't be possibly happening. Yeah, because it, it completely changed the game. And, of course, we go on to lose that. But it was motivation for the 96th year. So we'll start talking about that because when you talk about some of the greatest Kentucky teams of all time, the 95-96 Kentucky team is going to be right up there. I mean, when you look at that roster, you had you, you had Tony Delk, you had Antoine Walker, Walter McCarty, Mark Pope, Ron Mercer, Anthony Epps, Shepard, you had Wayne Turner coming in. And, of course, like, I know Nazi Muhammad was a freshman, and he was, you know, not the, not the Nazi Muhammad that he grew into. But you were too deep at, with solid guys at every position. So how did Patino get that team to, to mesh as a unit and put any kind of uh, egos and emotions aside to work for the greater good of the team? Well, the first thing he did was made everybody play hard. So if you wasn't playing hard, you weren't going to play in games. You weren't going to start. He makes the starting lineup a, a few times in the beginning and said, hey, if you guys don't bring it, you're not going to play. And once he did that, it was like guys knew they had to bring it. Even Tony Delk, Walter McCart, all those, even the seniors, like those guys, they knew they had to bring it so they get so they can get more time. And like you said, we were so loaded. It's like, well, if you don't play hard, you just don't play. I'll play the next guy. And I think that fear factor helped significantly in making those guys actually work work like all of us work I had our we most of us work hard because we were older you forget most of those guys like Tony Delk and all those guys were seniors which I was a junior which I would have been a senior but I sat out Epps was a junior like we were like the uh, Pope was a senior like most of our team was older guys 
So the only two guys we had to bring along was Ron Mercer, Wayne Turner, and of course Antoine Walker. He was a sophomore at the time. So, and the '95 season wasn't motivation in '96 because we had a, me, Ron, Wayne. Like we were all looking at it different. Like we came in. Like I knew I had to sacrifice because I could go in when I first played the first scrimmage game. I think I had about. 20 points and I was like well man I can't shoot like this because Tony won't get shots Walter won't get shot so I said I'll be the I'll be the the utility guy and they were like well because Dick Vitale was like well you haven't seen Derek Anderson play and he was at Ohio State scoring and doing this this and that and then he saw me play he's like oh my god you're really sacrificing for the team and it was so obvious that I was trying to win a championship because I knew how much talent we had because imagine if I come from a program where I'm averaging 15 but then all of a sudden I get a year, two years, but I'm averaging nine points. <laughs> yeah. And I was starting, so it wasn't like I couldn't shoot the ball. I just chose, pick and chose when I wanted to because I knew it was significant in us winning the game. You know, with Antoine and Tony, they didn't turn down too many shots. Nah. So imagine me doing what they did, which I could have. Yeah. Now nobody's nobody's getting in rhythm. Nobody's passing. Like nobody's looking for each other. It becomes some of the teams you see nowadays, a lot of talent. And it's funny, as I tell people, who's been the last the last two to three seasons, who's had the most talent? And they everybody says, well, Duke. And I said, but look what they're doing. They're going one-on-one. You can't play one-on-one basketball. You have to pass the ball, share the ball, and do other things as a team. And lo and behold, they keep losing with all that talent. Well, they need to keep losing, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless, unless they learn how to play together, they will. Yeah, well, you know, that's something now with the current program with, with Calipari. I mean, people debate, and we'll get into the one-and-done rule a little bit later. It's Some people are like, well, you know, should Calipari continue to re- recruit the one-and-done guys because they don't like the fact that it's a one-and-done guy and they want to win championships. And I, I got to tell you, just from my perspective as a fan, I think Calipari's done a heck of a job because he basically has a, a new core of guys every year and he has to have a new team and a complete rebuild, and he's expected to win big at Kentucky. You know, I think he's done a really good job in getting guys to buy into this team-first philosophy. But I'm like, well, what do you expect Calipari to do? He has to recruit the top guys because if he doesn't, well, then he doesn't have the top talent that he needs. And then if we're a a Sweet 16 team or a 10-loss team, that just doesn't satisfy the Kentucky fans. So it is like in a no-win situation. I would beg to differ. Really? All right, well, what's your different opinion? Well, if he's getting the top recruits, are we going to go out and get some guys who are utility guys? You can't always get – that's what I just told you. You can't always get the great players if you don't have utility guys to help the great players. Like you can't – you playing all these superstars who want the ball. They're young. They haven't matured. Like I told you, we were juniors and seniors, so we matured in a learning sacrifice. They're being forced into like, man, I got to do what? Like, I want to go to the NBA. Like, they're thinking, I got to go, I got to go, and they don't have to. I purposely, like, when people was getting mad at me when I said, well, I think this is his style of coaching, he said, well, you, you know he's our coach. I love him. He's a great guy. Cool. But the truth is, we need to develop guys. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I need. We need guys who are going to come in and be utility guys. So go get some guys that are going to develop. So Because when we won in 2012, who was the leading scorer? Uh, I think it was Carl Anthony Towns, but Dar- uh, D- no, Miller. I'm talking about saying we won in 2012. Oh, in 2012, Darius Miller. What, what year was he? Yeah. A, senior. He was, he was a senior. Yeah. If you haven't figured it out, we need leadership. 
So if you don't have leadership, we don't, we don't, yeah, because. Yeah. Was he the leading scorer? He averaged 15 and Anthony Davis averaged 14. Okay. I didn't realize he was the leading scorer. Yeah, he was for, well, I think it was the tournament. Remember, he was hitting those big threes. He slowed oh, them yeah. all no, up. He was the yeah. But he took over because he was a leader. He was a senior. Yeah. He knew he wasn't the best player, but he knew he had to calm them young guys down. Yeah. And I think that's what we miss when it's time to calm. What person calms a young guy down on our team now? Well, I think, um, gosh, what's his name? The point guard. Hagen. Hagen's. Hagen's. I mean, I think he's going to be awesome. I like this year. I love our team. But again, you're going to say the same thing. We got a bunch of freshmen we're relying on. <laughs> so you have to get guys who you can develop, who can help us win. So when they come in with too hard, a steady player like Hagen, you get another veteran guy who's who's rebounding hard like a Richards. Maybe he's learning how to play hard, yeah. rebound, block shots, run the floor. Mm-hmm. Now you got that. Now you can mix in with a couple young guys to where we don't need them to take us to the promised land. Yeah. Well, I guess in my comment, I was like, I, he has to recruit top guys, but he has to fit, make sure they fit into the puzzle. And to your point, which I, I agree with your point 100%, because if you look at all the great Kentucky teams, even on that 96 team, one of my favorite players was Anthony Epps. Yep. Glue guy. Yeah. And he was huge for us in 97 as well. So I always loved Absolutely. And you can tell me, he seemed like, from my perspective, that he was a real great leader. He was a great leader. He 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 calmed us down. So when all of us was like, if I, if Tony Delga hadn't got a shot, Anthony Epps would be like, hold on, y'all, we're going to get TD a shot. Like, how many players are going to say that right now? <laughs> like, that's a leader. Like, he knew the game because he was older. He was a point guard. He wasn't a five-star guy. Like, you have to start getting that way. If you look at all these teams right now, like, these guys don't – you you can have all the five stars you want. Look what happened to Virginia. Look at Villanova. Look at the teams that are winning. They're winning with veteran guys helping the young guys. It's not a secret. The game has been that way. Fab Five had the greatest young players ever, and they couldn't finish. They were too young. Mm-hmm. So either you want to win or you want to just fit – you just want to be seen as a good team. Yep. Well, no, that's all. That's all true. I uh, I agree. Plus, you're the basketball expert, so I really can't argue about that. <laughs> I'm just no. I'm just, it's just the reality. It's, it's it's habits. When you see what's going on, you'd be like, "Oh, okay, I see it now. It makes sense." Like everything I just said is a true. It's a true. Here's a problem. People hate that truth because it's us. Like I hate losing. Like when they got mad at me, I was like, "Look, we're losing because of this." Like if you're gonna ignore the fact that they'd be like, "Well, don't tell it why we're losing." Well, don't ask. Like, I have to tell the truth. Like, we, it's not about a personal thing. It's about why are we losing? Everybody's not going to win it every year. But you're going to have all this talent. We need to develop kids. We need to put them in a place where they can develop. They Like, the best thing about P.J. Washington was what? He came back. He came back. <laughs> How many guys don't come back? Yeah. Like, you needed to come back. There were so many kids that should have came back to school that didn't. Mm-hmm. And they get mad at me when I'm telling them that. Then you hear about them, they're out of the league right now. Yeah. Well, it's obvious. The kid didn't know how to play. He didn't know how to make a bounce pass in college. You think he's going to do it in the pros? If you just think about the, you know, not to just talk about Kentucky, but it's, that's what I know. James Young was a guy who is a really good shooter. Yep. But he he came out and he's he was out of the league after his first uh, deal. Now, maybe he's, I'm sure he's playing in Europe and hopefully making good money and stuff like that. But but that was a guy where I felt he could have come back, maybe gotten a little stronger physically. Mentally, it's not the physical part. The NBA is different. 
You don't need to be physical in the NBA. It's, you can't even touch anybody. You need to be mentally smart. That's the game. You you don't need to be fit. Look how small Steph Curry is. Yeah. Steph Curry's been thin his whole entire life. He learned how to play. He learned how to get his shot off. You have to learn how to play, and that's the difference in our generation. A lot of these kids don't they don't want to be coached. The parents want to leave, want their kids to leave early. So, and a lot of that's not on coaches. Some of it is, but some of it's not. Like you can't force a kid to be a certain way, but you're hoping the best that they listen, they learn, and they develop. That's the difference in us growing up. We went to school for two to three years. So our bodies developed, our minds developed, we got more experience. And now you go to the NBA, it's a job. They don't care about how good you were in college or you being a five star in high school. They need to keep it, they need to keep their team going so they can keep a job. <laughs> and I, I guess at least from my perspective, I mean, I can understand a a guy wanting to go pro because it's like, hey, I'm have the chance to make this money and stuff. And it's a lot more than 99.9% of your college graduates are going to make. But I feel like, you know, like PJ Washington, he came back and he got so much better that hopefully he's going to be in the league longer because he came into the NBA much more prepared and ready to go. So we'll see what happens. Well, I tell you what, on that 96 team though, you know, like I said, I love, I love that team and the glue guys that you mentioned, like you and Epps were just so important. And that UK team went went sixteen and zero in the SEC regular season. The only losses were to uh, UMass with Marcus Camby in second game of the year, and we lost to Mississippi State in the SEC tournament. When you guys lost, what lessons did you learn from that? Because I, if I read it right, Patino was under the opinion that if we had not lost to Mississippi State in the SEC tournament, and he benched Walker in that game, that that you guys wouldn't have won the NCAA championship. Do you agree with that? Here's the thing. I don't know because, you know, we were playing and we were having a rough game, but he sat all the starters down for a minute. Mm -hmm. It could have been, we could have been tired because remember we played so many games and you remember we pressed. Yeah. So it could have been us just being physically, mentally fatigued. It could have been a lot of variations, but as a coach, he might have saw something that we didn't. But I felt like we played hard. Like the teams we just beat – in the tournament, we beat everybody by 25 plus. Mm-hmm. Like we beat Florida by 30. We beat Arkansas by 25. Like, so I don't see why we were, you know, it'd be different if we had a close game. I'd be like, uh oh, we're playing around. But we blew everybody out. Yeah. So I don't get why he said that, but I understand as a coach, he might have saw something we did. Yeah. He might have saw us being like, oh, y'all not really focused. Y'all just that much talented, better. Like he might have saw something that I did. And, and, and that's why I say I didn't see it. Maybe he did as a coach. Like I'm, I'm a coach now, and I can see things, but it would be, it would have to be noticeable for me to say that. And I think he, he noticed that, and I think he reprogrammed us because after the loss, I, I don't think we changed our mentality. I think he just, I think he just made us aware of it. If you don't bring it every day, that you can lose. Because mm-hmm. we played hard. Like if you look at the tape, you see us diving for balls. You see the whole time, like we were playing hard. Like it wasn't like because that's all we knew how to do, mm-hmm. but I, I I think it was just something more to it. It, it could have been a lot, but there's a variation again. Like I said, I don't know what it could have been, but he 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 made the right decision of pushing us and making us play harder in practice, and that made us go harder in the tournament. Well, I tell you, when you got in the tournament, I mean, like you said, y'all were blowing people out. Of, I know y'all beat Virginia Tech and Ace Custis. We started our string of playing Utah for like 
every tournament for the next four or five, or seemed like four or five years. So we beat Utah in Sweet 16 with Keith Van Horn. And then uh, we got to play Tim Duncan and Wake Forest in the Elite Eight. And I got to tell you, as a fan going into that game, I was like, I mean, with the team we had, I was like, you know, we, we can beat anybody. But Tim Duncan was such a dominant player. I was like, man, this guy may take us to, to school down low because, I mean, he was really, <laughs> really tough. And they had, a, I believe, a guy who was their guard, Jerry Braswell, who was a pretty solid player. And we ended up beating Wake Forest by 20 points. It was like as soon as Duncan got the ball, it was a double team. So what was it like in that game? It was a lot of fun because the one uh, – it's funny as Tim became my teammate in the pros, but he said, uh, well, they lost once, then they can lose again. He said that in the interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, was him? I think some one of their players said that. And so it was more like they're not invincible. So when they said that, it was like we took it a personal and we were really just going after them continuously. It was more of a personal thing that we had, and we all wanted to just shut Tim down and not let anybody else get off. We could have won by more points. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a dominant game. I mean, I could not believe how dominant we were in that game. So so we win that game. We go to the Final Four. We get a rematch against Marcus Canby and UMass, of course, then coached by John Calipari. What was it like going into that game? Because that was the only team that beat us in the regular season. Well, it was a good game because what happened was they had knew all our players. They knew how we played. They knew how to beat our press. They had found a recipe for that. But the only recipe they didn't have was understanding that they're gonna we're going to score better than we did. Because the first game we played, Tony Delk was starting point guard. Mm-hmm. And Tony Delk, me, Ron Mercer, Walter, like he put the best athletes out there. Where when, when Epps played, Epps came and, and changed the team – because he didn't need to shoot all the balls. Like Ron Mercer and I was running a break one time and Tony Duck pulled up for a jump shot. Yeah. Where in this situation, Anthony Epps threw an alley-oop and we made a point. Yep. So it was just different at that time. We had figured out who we were as a team. It was a close game until the end, and then we pulled away. But they knew how to play. They had two senior guards and a best player in the country, Marcus Canby, and, and a five-star with Dante Bright on the team. Yeah, I remember Dante Bright, Edgar Padilla, Yep. One of those guards, and I forgot the other guy's name. Travieso, whatever. Travieso, Carmelo Travieso. Yep. Yeah. No, that was a that was a good team, and I was like, as a fan, I was kind of like, all right, we beat UMass. That's the tough one. We should be able to handle Syracuse. But what did the guys within the team and the leaders and Coach Patino do to keep you guys motivated for that championship if he needed to? Because I guess if you're playing for a championship, you probably shouldn't need any motivation for that game, right? Yeah, I don't remember any motivation he gave us. I pretty much just remember us coming out saying, hey, guys, this is the moment we've been waiting for, and let's just play free, play like we've been playing all year, and let's do that. And that's what we did. We were a little tight because we were we were missing layups and easy shots. Here's the funny part. We shot 27% from the field, and we won by 11 points or not, whatever it was. How many people can do that? Yeah. You shoot 27% from the field and still win – by almost double digits. Yeah, what was interesting about it is I thought that the championship game was the worst game we played in the tournament. The whole year, <laughs> 27%. But they were in a zone the whole game. Yeah. Most teams the most teams never got to get in the zone. Yeah. Because we were beating them so bad. It was a huge relief to the Kentucky fans to get that win. We hadn't won since 1978, so uh, 18 years the monkey was off the back. I know it was a huge relief. What, what was it like in that locker room after winning that championship? 
Man, it was surreal. Like we, I, I don't remember the locker room. I remember the court. <laughs> Cause I, I just remember being like, man, we won. We were on the court forever, cutting the nets down, celebrating, having our family members come out. It was so cool, man. It was unbelievable. And I don't remember the locker room. I remember the court. And then I remember getting to the bus. And then I remember the hotel ride. And we come back through all the great fans. Oh man, then coming back from the airport. All the people are lined up on the, the highway. Like, I remember all that. The locker room, I remember. But the court and all that other stuff, it was a surreal moment because we had done something that we're forever in the record books. Like, we're forever. Like, no matter what, we're always forever a champion in college. And, man, that's an awesome feeling. Like, even now, it's a great com- compliment that we have that. And and we just loved it, man. We, we embraced each other. We loved each other. Like, we still – send group messages right now to this day when something good's happened to somebody or the holidays that 9016 was different like we're still connected to this day yeah well it means a lot to everybody but being a Kentucky kid does it mean more when you're a Kentucky kid winning that championship with UK like cuz you and Epps were Kentucky guys oh absolutely we were like I said we became we came home and we're like immortal almost <laughs> at that point we were like rock stars seriously it's like yeah these guys are from here you guys how was that feeling to win a championship and one shiny moment and like it was just so many people just so appreciative what we did man but we had to be humble but man we were so hyped <laughs> it was so cool it was funny too we were everybody was just celebrating we celebrated the whole year yeah until the next season started yeah i know that was such a special team and so you said you guys still stay in touch pretty close Oh, yeah, definitely stay in touch all the time. Of course, Antoine is on SEC Network now, and, you know, he does a really good job on SEC Network, I think. Yeah, I think he does a good job. He knows the game, though. Yeah. That's what makes it easier for him. Mm-hmm. And Delk was on there for a while, but I, I, didn't see, I didn't see him as much last year, so I don't know if he's still doing that or not. I don't think so. He, he does other stuff. Yeah. So, well, no, that was such a cool team. You know, one of the greatest Kentucky teams of all time. I mean, and the thing about it is, is like you said, everybody kind of had to sacrifice because everybody on that team, they could have scored, they could have averaged five more points a game, no doubt about it. And someone could have been selfish, but then it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. No, it wouldn't have. Couldn't have worked. Yeah. Well, after the 96 season, you know, we lost a lot of guys with, with Tony Duck graduating, Walter McCarty graduated. They got drafted, Pope graduated, and Antoine left for the NBA, got drafted that year. So going into 97, what was the expectation like for you? Because it was going to be you and Ron Mercer kind of taking control of the team. Shepard redshirted that year, and you had Epps. So what was the expectation going into 97? Oh, we didn't have expectations. We weren't those type of players who were like, oh, man, we got to come back and win and Everything we did was basically saying, hey, let's just go out there and play like we always play. Play hard, play together, play for each other. So we didn't we didn't have expectations. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people might have thought we did, but we actually didn't. And it just so happened we did everything the right way. And and that's why it worked out. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I mean, I, I know we got off to a, a little bit of a slow start maybe that first game. But, boy, I tell you what, after that, the, the dynamite went off and – you were scoring big time numbers. I mean, Ron was putting up some good numbers, and we were blowing people out left and right. So, what was it like once y'all got in that rhythm? It was fun, man. Like you could see us rolling. You could see how we were f- making each other better. 
I just remember seeing so many of our highlights and like, wow, if I had 20 in the first half, second half, Ron would have 20. It was just amazing. Like, it, it, it was it was just fun to see. It was fun to be a part of. But then when you watch your highlights, you'd be like, oh, man, we were really killing guys. I looked at the stats the other night, you know, prepping for this interview. And, I mean, when we won the games, it was always by, like, 20 points. I mean, we were really, like, blowing people out. And, uh, yep. <laughs> and, you know, going back to Anthony Epps, I mean, that guy was just such an important part of the team, in my opinion, from the the, the fans' perspective. He hit so many clutch threes. It just seemed like he was kind of that rock, and, you know, he was short and strong, so kind of built like a fire hydrant. And just mm-hmm. he just gave off this tough guy persona that I, I think you always need somebody like that on the team. I guess going back to your point earlier about having those – core guys who can sacrifice and develop but i just always really loved anthony epps as a ball player and of course listen that guy was the glue to our team yeah he says a funny comment he said i didn't make millions i made millionaires (laughs) (laughs) it was so cool when he said that i was like he's right because without him we would have all been selfish dudes trying to shoot all the balls so no anthony Epps was a glue and he made big shots when guys would double team me or ron he would always come up, and he was never shy because he had been used to doing that because he had won state high school championship. Yeah, Marion. So Anthony has been—he's been a winner his whole life. What's he doing now? He's coaching um, at a school, I think, back in his hometown. But it's football now; it's not basketball. Yeah, because he was a, a good high school football player too. Oh, he's ridiculously good. That's what I'm saying. He's a—he's a talent. He's a winner. Yeah, of course. I mean, you were putting up some crazy numbers. I mean. Let me tell you, some of the dunks that you did, they were just like, wow. <laughs> I, know, right? I was like, I knew I would never get there at all. You know, I'm not the basketball athlete. My vertical is a little challenged. <laughs> of course, during that season, you you had an, an injury to your ACL. Talk about that situation and what it was like for you to, to go through. Because I know I was suffering, let alone what you were, were suffering going through such a magical season at that time. You know what? It was one of those things I wasn't so heartbroken because I felt like I played well enough. I had a good run and I wasn't thinking about the NBA. Like a lot of people was like, oh, you got to worry about the NBA. I'm like, you know what? I got to make it to graduate. I got to get my knee better so I, I can give myself a chance. And they were like, oh, wow, that's different. I said, yeah, I have to work hard my rehab so I know what, what's what's coming next. Like if I get an opportunity to play, I want to be ready. If not, I have to graduate. I have to get my get my life together like I planned when I was a kid. Like, we didn't think of the NBA as the, as the thing. It's like, oh, man, this is great. I get to go to the NBA. We didn't think like that. We we thought about processing every moment like that, and that's what we did. Of course, when, when you went down, I mean, Ron had to take some more of the slack, but Epps stepped up. Uh, Scott Padgett, yeah. uh, he came back after Christmas, around Christmas, I think, he was a, a very important part of that team, and the Cameron Mills started to step up. Yeah, everybody stepped Allen Edwards. Like, that team stepped up as a team. Yeah, and Nazi. Yep. So, made another magical run. I think we, went, we won the SEC tournament that year. Yeah, we did. Yep. I went there. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. It was at the yep. Pyramid in Memphis. Yep. I tell you what, just watching those games, they beat the fire out of Ron Mercer in those games. I mean, yeah. it just seemed like. I mean, he just got hit on every play. But I, I don't know if there was a a better shooter at that time at the elbow 
around the free throw line. I mean, he'd just go to that elbow and pull up. Oh my god! Just, yeah, nobody could. You couldn't block a shot. He jumped right over you. Yeah. Of course, we um, win the SEC tournament. Then we go and make a nice run in the NCAA tournament. Get back to the Final Four, and they were they're saying in the press, "All right, Derek Anderson's going to be cleared to go. Derek Anderson's going to be cleared to go." And then we heard you're cleared to go. And then Patino didn't put you in except for shooting foul shots. So I was like, what was going on there? <laughs> it was difficult because I think he made a life decision because I was healthy to play. I practiced two days in a row. I'd windmill dunked. I was dunking all over the place and playing well. And the problem was I think he didn't want to risk me getting hurt and everyone criticizing him for trying to win another championship. He said, hey, I won one and I don't want to jeopardize his future because I was begging to play like literally begging him to play and he just felt like it was best for my future. And I, and I had to respect that. Like, like I told him then I said, I would have played in. They say, would you to play even to jeopardize your 11 year career? I said, absolutely. Cause you don't know what your life holds before. I want to live every moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people started to be like, Oh, he really means that. Like he literally lives in every moment. Like if you ever watch me play, I laugh and I smile, but I run every play down. Like it's my last. Mm-hmm. Like I had to play like that. Yeah, I know. I was like, man, if we had Anderson in, we'd be blowing these people out. Which, I mean, we beat Minnesota in the Final Four game. Then we got to Arizona and played that team with Mike Bibby and Miles Simon. Um, Bennett Davison, I think, was on that team. I forgot the other guys. But, you know, we ended up going into overtime and we ended up losing. But, you know what, that was a game, too, where they were, were really focusing on Ron, trying to shut him down. And I know Epps had a big game. Cameron Mills hit some big shots. Padgett did. But ultimately, we came up a little bit short. So what was it like for the team after that game, having gone through such a magical season but coming up a little bit short? Well, that that game itself was was really a painful game, even though we made it far, because we had, we had made it further than what people said. We were trying to get a, a a championship, but it was just so so emotional. And I think that's what made it so hard. It was more of an emotional game than it was the talent. And we were just we were just kind of like disappointed in ourselves because a lot of people didn't expect us to go back, especially when I got hurt. They were like, "Oh, they're not going to make it." You know, leading scores out. Ron was a sophomore; he was young, but Ron Ron played. People don't realize, but Ron had twenty points in a championship game. Yeah, against Syracuse. Yeah, so it's like that kid could play. Like, but it was just different, man. It was just one of those things where you you're emotionally engulfed in it, and it was hard to deal with. I mean, I felt Ron Mercer had to just be exhausted out there just because I mean like I said in those games they were just so physical on him and you know they were focused on him so much and I mean I, I think that guy gave every ounce of energy he had in that tournament and left it all on the floor yep here's a problem though it's like we pressed yeah well that's right so he's gonna be tired like that was just a lot to deal with he was extremely tired yeah well I tell you what I mean if you think about those Two years in Kentucky, back well, three years because in '98 they won the championship. I mean that that was just a magical, magical run in Kentucky basketball, and it was fun to watch as a fan. I'm sure it was fun to be a part of as a player as well. Yeah, it was awesome, man. It was it was great to be in those times, and and again, we did it as a team. We had no agendas about going anywhere. We just we just wanted to play basketball. I think that's what I that's what I miss so much now is like a lot of kids feel pressure to go to the NBA or feel they have to do it right now. Like, dude, if you're not good now, come back. I don't care if you're a junior or senior. Damian Lillard came and 
CJ, like there's guys who's who seniors that ain't got good and they stay in the NBA. That Damian Lillard is such a good ball player. My But they but people but people trick these kids into thinking if you stay out four years, you're not gonna be labeled as you're gonna be labeled too old. No, you're not. If you're good, you're good. Period. Stop believing that. They keep saying, Oh no, if he stays, he's gonna be looked at as no, he's not. Because if he comes out and averages 20 points as a senior in college and he knows how to play, they're gonna look at him as the same way they would as a, as a freshman. He knows how to play. They just they just know he knows he's a smart lot smarter now. So if I was an NBA executive, which that would be my living the dream job to have that. But I just remember back in the day, you know, growing up and you'd draft guys coming out in the eighties. So let's say, you know, when Patrick Ewing came out and when Jordan left as a junior, but you know, most guys came out as a junior, senior, but they were household name. So I get a more polished product as a player, but I also for my marketing, I get a guy that's going to help sell tickets instantly right away. I mean, when Shaq got drafted in 92 and he left as a junior, I mean, not only was Shaq a, a developed player who still had a long a ways to go, but he was just a marketing sensation right away. And so I think that's at least something I would do differently if I was a, an NBA executive. And the other thing too is, I would want a guy who can step in and contribute right away. Because right. Don't be having them gamble the whole time. That's what's wrong with this, this, this organization. Everybody's gambling. That's why it's a revolving door. And you don't even know half the teams on the bench right now, the players. You're like, where'd he go at? Oh, he was there for three months. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing, like you said, if you're having to develop a kid, I guess now the rookie contracts in the first round, are they three-year contracts? Yep. So, all right, if you got a guy – First year, he's a project. Maybe he's down in the G League or whatever. But if he doesn't really develop until that third year, well, you've spent a lot of money developing a kid for two years when you really need that guy to contribute to try to be a playoff team and move up. Yep. At least that's, that's my perspective. That's a, smart, that's a smart evaluation. But here's the thing. I think more of the, the, the pressures on these organizations to say, Get the next Kobe Bryant, get the next Kevin Garnett, get the next LeBron James. Mm-hmm. So they're figuring, hey, let's get a young guy that might be, be something instead of getting a guy who's actually developing, playing, and knows how to play, and he helps your team win games. Yeah. But I always think of a Draymond Green. See, Draymond's a guy that I I love him and I hate him. I, oh, I don't hate him. At the like same him. time. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You dislike some of the stuff he does. I yeah. love his skill set. I love his talent. I love the fact that he doesn't care if he doesn't score a point. He's there to uh, facilitate. He's there to rebound, block shots, pass, and he'll do what he needs to do. And he was that way at Michigan State. And he's, I think he's very intelligent as a very. basketball player. Basketball player, yep. I don't know him off the court, but I think he does pretty well there too. He is so important to Golden State. I mean, he is critical to that team. And if an NBA guy now, they're like, well, they wouldn't maybe pick a Draymond Green. I mean, Draymond got drafted in the second round. Second round, exactly. Going back to your point earlier, when you put me in my place. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have in the NBA these guys that are your glue guys that don't care about – this now Andre Guadala is a guy like that. You were that kind of a player where a guy's going to come in and he can score when you need it and he can get 10, 15 points here or there, but he's a stat sheet stuffer. And 
it, you just got to have that. Uh, the Spurs had it for many of the teams. Of course, we'll get to you playing with the Spurs. I like it when the guys stay a little bit longer. Uh, I like when they come out more polished because I feel like that hopefully they can stay in the league longer than their just their first deal. But when you got drafted, you got drafted in the 97 draft, first round, 13th pick with Cleveland Cavaliers. Easy for me to say. <laughs> what was that transition like from college to the NBA? For me, it wasn't bad because I think I had learned how to play uh, the game. Again, I was a senior, fifth-year senior at that. So I had learned how to play. Like I knew how to play. I knew kind of stuff that to do. I knew what I was doing when I got to the NBA. So to me, it was like, oh, he's, he's, he's cool. Like I don't have to rush. I don't have to force anything. I felt like I wasn't stressed about, oh, man, I got to prove something. Like I knew how to play. I just needed an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I, I think my mindset was totally different. Like I said, I was a fifth-year senior. Didn't have to think twice about things. I just played. So when you came in, that was when those Chicago Bull teams of Jordan and Pippen were still winning their titles. What was it like uh, being matched up with Michael Jordan? Oh, it was cool, man. I signed a shoe deal with him, so I was like, wow, this guys he's a man. So I was having fun and just enjoying everything, but – He's he's considered to me as one of the greatest players I ever play, and I was just excited, man. I was I wasn't nervous though because I had worked out with him the summer. We had been doing commercials because our shoe deal, so I wasn't nervous. That was that was a good thing. I just was like, you know what, I'm ready to play, and and just went out and played. And uh, you know the thing with Jordan is that's interesting is he evolved as a player from this slasher driver dunker as a young guy to where he had that knockdown jump shot that mid-range jump shot and i mean you know you had to respect his drive but then he'd come back and kill you with a jump shot and a great defensive player too i mean being a heat fan kind of i was talking with jamal mashburn on a an earlier podcast i was like man jamal whenever um Vishon leonard or marley had guard jordan i felt like if they breathed on him too hard they'd call a foul <laughs> you know jordan was just such a an iconic player and of course people debate well you know, is he the greatest of all time? Is he better than Kobe? Is he better than Bird? And it's really kind of hard to compare, I think, guys, because times are different. But I think if you're picking your top five team of any generation, Michael Jordan is your is your starting two guard. Right. <laughs> all right, so you played on a variety of teams. You played with uh, Cleveland. You played with the Spurs, Clippers, Houston, Portland, the Heat. What was your favorite team to play on? I didn't have a favorite like team just to play on, but I know San Antonio was one of the best teams I play. I fit better. I was actually having fun. Uh, the game was cool. Players were cool. Everything was cool about it. I just I, I ran into the NBA business side of it. Yeah, and that happens to a lot of guys, and it happened to me. Think about Monte Ellis. Remember how good he played when he's at Golden State. When he left, you didn't even hear from the guy anymore. You know what I mean? So I think it's the biggest problem is. Sometimes we get caught up in the business side instead of the uh, situational fits. Because it was me, Tim Duncan, David Robinson, and everybody else, and I was fitting in. The next year they would have got Tony Parker. That would have been great for me. I had Avery Johnson at the time who wasn't a great shooter but a great leader. Mm -hmm. So it was just different, and I think that was the biggest situation. Yeah, Sean Elliott was on that team too. Yeah, he was on that team. He was kind of ailing. Antonio Daniels, Malik Rose was a great rebounder, great player. He was a one of those. He was one of those glue guy, kind of like an. Yeah, he was a huge glue guy too. 
I always liked Malik Rose. Yeah, Malik was a good dude, man. Good player, everything. You looked at everything and you were just like, well, man, what's going on? And this isn't that. And the business side hit me and it was never the same as far as that. But I think they were just a good fit for me. I love my teammates in other places, but that was just a better fit for me and just all around calming, peaceful. But again, I played in other good teams, other good places. And uh, I love Portland. The city was awesome. Mm-hmm. I did a lot, man. It was just a lot of fun. I tell you what, on that, I guess on San Antonio, what was it like playing with David Robinson? Because, I mean, obviously one of the greatest players of all time, very bright guy and, uh, you know, good moral guy and everything. Was he kind of the tone setter of that team? Well, actually he wasn't because he was quiet. I think everyone else was quiet too. I think Popovich more or less controlled our team because we were all kind of like doing everything together. He focused on that. I think that was the biggest thing. We were all trying to figure out what's the best way of doing something. And Popovich always kind of gave us that mentality. Oh, do this. This is a good idea. This is that. And and it kind of worked out. Then Avery was more vocal leader on the court. Mm-hmm. But David really didn't say much, even off the court or anything. He was just kind of going with everything. And Tim Duncan did the same thing. But we had a lot of veteran guys. Like I said, Avery Johnson was a veteran, Sean Elliott. Like we had some guys that were older and we knew how to handle ourselves. Looking at your stats, I mean, that was – no, actually the year, the year before with the Clippers was your best scoring year at 17 points a game, but you had 15 and a half points per game as a member of the Spurs. And, you know, just looking at your stats, I mean, you've always been a guy that's just a stat sheet stuffer where you know, always double figures and points, always around four or five rebounds, four or five assists, you know, good defensive guy, can play multiple positions. So, that I mean, you got to have people like that. So you went from the Spurs to Portland. What was it like playing in Portland? I know you like the city, but that was an interesting team from a personality <laughs> yeah. Wallace and gosh, Zebo was on that team. Was Steve Smith on that team? No, I traded. We got a, a sign and trade. Yeah. That's right. But um, you guys were in the same division as the Lakers with Shaq and Kobe, and I know the playoff battles were, were tough there. So what was that like? It was tough, man. It was a, it was a lot of fun because I like the guys. The guys are super cool. Mm-hmm. I just think we ran it. A lot of guys had off-the-court issues. It transferred onto the court, kind of messed things up. But we had a good team. We had great guys, like still cool dudes right into this day. It was just one of those things where guys were growing up. Like it's basically getting on a team, and you're like, well, "What happened to that team? They all broke up, you know?" Because we were we were all going in different directions, and I think that was the biggest key. It's like, "What are we going to do here?" So, but I, I think it was still a it was still a great, great, great run, great team. We ran into them Lakers when they were going hard. Yeah, you know, Shaq was playing out of his mind, so it was like, man. Well, of course, then. Um- you know, one of the things we have in common besides being from Kentucky is we've also both lived in Miami and you went to the Miami Heat at the end of that 2006 season. What was it like um, going to Miami, playing with Pat Riley and Dwayne Wade and Shaq was on that team, Alonzo Mourning, and just transitioning to a completely different culture than what we're used to in Kentucky? Yeah, it was a lot of fun, man. It was just the whole thing about it was like he had wanted me to sign with him before and I was thinking about it and then when we started conversating again he was like i really want you to be on the team and and we had a great run man to think about it, i told you uh the other day it was a, we had gary payton me alonzo morning and antoine walker all four starters 
our entire careers are now coming off the bench. Like that was a nucleus that you could like you could have beat teams like that in a season with us. And I think we were just like we were also committed on making this run. And I think that's what made it so much fun. The guy, everybody was committed to winning. Like even Shaq, they were just committed to winning, and it made it fun. You know, I went to a lot of those ball games, and it. I mean, I will say this for the Heat fans: when the Heat fans get behind you, they get loud, and they they support their teams. And um, it was a it was a fun run. You know, it was. I mean, obviously Dwayne Wade had his big numbers, but there were times when he was out, and you stepped up and put up some big numbers. It was a nice playoff win against Dirk Nowitzki and the Mavericks. Let me ask you this, kind of like with a Dirk Nowitzki. What was it like? Where we? Because when Dirk came in, you started to see these guys who were 6'10", 6'11", 7 feet tall, and they're shooting threes out there. I mean, back in the day, that was like Larry Bird was the only person who did that. But then you had Dirk, and then Kevin Garnett started to develop his jump shot. And I mean, how do you defend these guys like that? I mean – it's just it seems almost impossible. Like Kevin Durant right now, I don't know how you defend a guy like that. Well, what happened was the evolution of Shaq. People realized you weren't gonna you can't breed a Shaquille O'Neal. So what's your next alternative? Is to get some guys that can shoot and get him away from the basket. So it wasn't like there was like, oh, we couldn't find a shoot. Like you forget Robert Ori could shoot like that. There was a lot, there was a lot of other guys that could shoot the ball out there. Bill Lambert could shoot. Like there were guys that could shoot. But what happened was you weren't allowed to shoot that many jumpers when you have a dominant center. When you have big men in the post, you weren't allowed to do that. Like people tell me, I tell people today, I said, Nick Van Exel in this generation is a Steph Curry. He had better dribbles. He had better moves. He shot deep just like Steph, but he never got to shoot 10 threes. He had Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, and Eddie Jones on his team. Can you imagine him shooting 10 threes a game? Not with Kobe on the team. Man, he'd have got cut that day. so it's just a different generation it's different the players are good but you're not needed to do things like you are like your freedom that you have like Dirk Nowinski wasn't going to guard Shaq so if that coach told him you can't shoot threes what would have what would have Dirk's been his thing he couldn't play defense he wasn't boxing out he wasn't rebounding like Rodman he wasn't posting you up he was a seven foot jump shooter and you couldn't block it so he was a phenomenon he was one of the first and that's what made him so great at his position because he wasn't going to guard those. He couldn't guard Tim Duncan's, Kevin Garnett, Rasheed Wallace, Carl Malone. But you couldn't guard him either because he was shooting jump shots and nobody had seen that yet. Mm-hmm. So it was just a different generation. Like, I don't look at it and be like, well, you know, these guys are the best. I just think it's a different caliber type of situation. I think they're great players, but I would never put someone and say, oh, they're great. Like, there's too many generations this past that you can't say, oh, this guy would have been this, this guy to like, imagine if uh, Dan Issel played in this generation, how much freedom would he have? <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's a good point because Dan Issel was 6'9", and he could shoot long distance. The lights out. Now, if he's pick and rolling with a Steph Curry or Dame Lillard, look at his numbers. Yeah. And he and he got 27,000 points. Yeah. Without shooting a bunch of threes. Yeah. No, that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So this generation, a lot of people lose focus on the site that – it's just different, but that doesn't make them better or doesn't make them less. It's just totally different. And and those guys then back then, like think about this, Havlicek, Pistol Pete, they averaging 30 points without a three-point line. Yeah. 
they averaged 30 points without a three-point line. Yeah. So imagine them shooting three threes. So that's literally 39 to 40 points a game with a three-point line with them. That's phenomenal. I don't care what era you're in. But it's a different era. It's a different mindset. And, and again, not to take anything away from anybody, because you know these fans get sensitive. Yeah, I just think it's just different generations, and we should embrace them having fun in this generation because it's a little different game. It's a different game based upon the freedom, the the change. Like, I could never shoot 10 threes a game, and he's averaging 10 threes a game. Like, you just couldn't do that. But it doesn't mean that he's supposed to be punished because he did and we didn't. No, let's enjoy him. Let's watch and see what happens. And that's why I tell people, don't compare him. Just, just watch him. Just enjoy him. Yeah, and it's, you know, as a fan, we always want to debate, okay, well, if you were picking your all-time team, who would you pick? And they always say, well, you know, my point guard would have to be Magic Johnson, my shooting guard would have to be Jordan, my small forward would be Larry Bird, my center would be Kareem, and my power forward would be pick a number. You could pick Tim Duncan, you could pick Carl Malone, or you may say, you know what, I'm going to go with a really big front line and I'm going to go with Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like I could come back later and say, you know what? I loved Akeem the Dream Elijah one. And I I wouldn't pick him over Kareem, but I mean, he was really great. But like, how do you say, okay, well, you know what? What LeBron's doing right now, and you put him and Kevin Durant and Kobe, and I mean, you can pick a point guard. I I love Damian Lillard. I don't, I don't, he's not up to Magic Johnson, Oscar Robertson level. Right, right, right. But man, there's so many good ball players out there that's really hard to compare. But fans want to do it, and then they get mad at you when you tell them my answer. It's like, dude, yeah. I don't compare it to them. I just think that there's so many players that are just as good, and I think they all just don't get the right opportunity. Like we talked about, Monte Ellis. Think about all the guys that played with LeBron, like the, the Crowders, the Rodney Hoods, the Derrick Rose. Like He got rejuvenated when he left Cleveland because he didn't have to sit in the corner and watch LeBron bring the ball up. Yeah. Like it just doesn't fit. doesn't mean it's somebody's fault. It just doesn't fit. Well, now I'm going to ask you a tough question. We were debating about, well, how do you compare these guys? Now I'm going to ask you to compare. So if you were building a 10-man team of guys that you played with, who would you pick on your team? Well, it depends. Like, what era we get to play in? The era that you were playing in. In the 90s? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm picking all the 90s players. The only players I'm not picking, I'm adding on. Pick any 10 guys in. What, like I said, it just depends on the era. Like, in this era, and this freedom of movement, you want to take a shooter. So you'll take one of those, like a KD or somebody like that. Like, but here's the, here's the thing that I look at. I if you're basing it on a team to just win and play, like you have to pick a player like a Magic who's gonna make everybody better. Like I'm not looking at a point guard like Isaiah can score, but he wasn't gonna run a break like Magic. I wouldn't rush book. He plays hard. He's aggressive, but he's not gonna make jump shots at the end of games most of the time. He's just a powerful guard that plays hard, which you'd love to watch play. But I'm not going to take an Oscar Robinson when I need a Magic to pull somebody up like he did in the finals. Like those scenarios will come in each player except like a Jordan, a Shaquille O'Neal when he was young. Like I'm taking those guys because they're freaks of nature. They're gifted beyond anything. Like a LeBron, you take him because he's gifted mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. Like certain players you could use. But again, you have to pick out what era. Because if I'm playing in an old school era – and I know some of these guys that are good, but they cry now because they're getting touched. I don't want them on my team. Like, I want guys who are going to get up and fight. Jordan would get clawed, kicked, beat up, and he's getting up and fight. Like, if you need if you needed a rebound, 
before Dennis Rodman lost, lost like got out of whack. Like who else rebounded better than Dennis Rodman besides him and the Jason Williams tall kid? Nobody else rebounded like those guys. Well, I tell you what, if I was building my team, I think, well, like you said, it's, it's kind of it's tough. And is there like, yeah, who would you, who, here's a better question. If you, if you had to live and die with this team forever for 10 years straight, what team would you put in there for 10 years straight? All right. I, I think I can answer that question. I think, I think I'd go with Magic Johnson as my point guard. I go with Jordan as my shooting guard. I go with Larry Bird as my small forward. I'd go with Tim Duncan as my power forward. And the reason why I go with Tim Duncan as my power forward, because like him and Magic, I really don't think Tim Duncan cares if he scores that <laughs> Facts, much. facts. He's there for blocking and rebounding, and he's there for and Help defense and everything, yes. And then as the center, you know, there's so many great centers out there. I mean, a lot of people pick Bill Russell. I didn't get to see Bill Russell, but he's a defensive guy. Then you got Wilt Chamberlain, who was more offense, but he couldn't hit foul shots. Then you got Shaq, who, you know what? Shaq was a better player. He was a great, great player. And he had some deficiencies, obviously, at the foul line. But he was a really good passer. And a lot of people didn't think that. I loved Elijah one. And I love Kareem. But I think I'd probably go with Kareem because he and Magic have chemistry together. And I think that that hook shot was so hard to beat. But then if I'm picking my other top 10 team, I want Duran on my team. Mm-hmm. I just don't think you you can't stop that guy. And as long as he has a good attitude, because I don't know what happened to his attitude in Golden State. He got mad. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, his skill set is is great. So I, I would definitely would have him. I'd have LeBron on there to be a, the facilitator, kind of like a Magic Johnson. Gosh, I mean, it's it's hard, so hard to think, but because I'd probably have Akeem Olajuwon mm-hmm. on my team. I just loved him as a player, All right. defensive guy. Good offensive stuff. Gosh, I, I you know I don't know who I'd have at that small forward. Oh, I, I go with Kevin Durant, I guess. I wouldn't have Kobe, and I will say this: I know Kobe. If you're talking about your best 10, 15 players of all time, he's going to be on that list. But I wouldn't pick him on that team because I don't think, from what I saw as a fan, I don't think he'd fit in the, the chemistry. I think he'd want to take too many shots. He's he's missed the most shots in in, in NBA history. So you're absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> I love Dwayne Wade. I don't know if he would – I may take Wade just because he has a good smile and he's a Miami guy. Right. He's a great guy. And I want to pick Derek Anderson. He's always been a guy that needs a little help, though. Yeah. Because he's never been a guy to just force stuff. Like He's such a good player. Like He lets the game come to him. He fills it out. He's willing to, to just chill. He's not trying to be a ball hog. But he know he's in attack mode when he's needing to be in attack mode. He'll let you get your game off. So, yeah, he's not one of those guys. Like, he could fit in any team, but you're right. He wouldn't be the best best fit for some of those teams. You know what? I, I'm I'm going back on some of my picks. On that uh, last five, two of those are going to be John Stockton and Carl Malone. I love them. <laughs> you like them? I love them. No, that was, that's a system, though. I would never pick them as a system. Like, yeah. Like, when you look at John Stockton and Olympics and all that stuff like that, that's a system. Yeah. So I wouldn't pick those guys. But I love them. I love watching them, but I wouldn't pick those yeah. guys. Um, my first will be Magic, second, Jordan, third, KD. 
Only reason I take him over Larry Bird is because I know he could get to the hole. Yeah. He could post. He block shots. He run the break. Well, Larry's going to do everything, everything offensively, mm-hmm. but not a lot defensively. So if I had to choose, it would be like 1A and 1B. Mm-hmm. My power forward would definitely Tim Duncan, and my center would be Shaquille in his prime. And the only reason I say that is because when he lost to Lajuan, he had young guys with Penny Hardaway and Nick Anderson. They didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And and that's the only reason I would take Shaq over Elajuan because Elajuan was a better like like ball moving his feet and all this stuff, but Shaq was too dominant and he he could knew how to play like Tim Duncan. He would be throwing spin lobs and everything up to him. Mm-hmm. So I would take that five. My second group, LeBron at the one, I would put I would put Kobe at the two because he learned in a system to play. But I get what you're saying. I will put Larry Bird at the three. I will put. Kevin Garnett at the four and Elijah one at the five. Yeah. And I think they all fit because KD, KG, he didn't need to shoot a lot of shots, but he got an elbow jump shot, pick and roll, pop, double team, Akeem. He hits that elbow jump shot probably 75% of the time. Yeah. And, you know, that's those are great teams. And your second five, they would probably win a couple of games against your your first five, too. First group. Yeah. Because LeBron matches up with, with Magic as far as height, but not skill set. Yeah. Gosh, I, I forgot now who I picked in my top five. I was naming off so many. Of course, I said Stockton Malone. I love Charles Barkley as a player. And, you know, he was such a a transcending player because I remember him from Auburn because I grew up, when I first started going to Kentucky games, that's when they had Sam Bowie and Melvin Turpin, Charlie Hurt. Charlie Hurt, I don't know if you remember him, but he was from Shelby. Yeah, yeah, I remember. He was six foot six, but he was built like a rock. And I remember – I went to a game down in Auburn. I was like maybe, gosh, it's probably, it had to be 83, so that means I would have been six. And Barkley, of course, is always a trash talker, trying to push people around. Well, you weren't going to push Charlie Hurd around because he was just built like a Greek god. Right. And anyway, so they started pushing and stuff, and like Charlie Hurd just shouldered Charles Barkley into the stands, and then Charles kind of shut up. But <laughs> Charles was like – Listed at six foot six and about two hundred and seventy pounds, and at Auburn, but he was really like six foot four. But just the power and speed. And then when he got to the NBA, it was this big time score with 25, 28 points a game and rebound. But I don't want him on the team just for the personality too. Right. <laughs> keep everybody nice and loose, I would think. And so all with team chemistry. So well, that's pretty cool. You know, there are just so many great players in the NBA and in college, and I just. I just love watching the game because, I mean, I my best sport was always baseball. And, like, now I still play a lot of softball. You know, I just have always been a basketball fan because when you grow up in Kentucky, it's a birthright. You have to be a basketball fan, especially if you're a, a, a young boy. Yep, no question about it. No way around it, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you ever have any dreams of trying to coach in college or the NBA or even trying to be a part of an ownership group in the NBA? I've been coaching now, and what's funny is this, is I'm realizing the politics of everything, Mm -hmm. is they'll say, y'all, you need experience, and then they'll hire somebody who has zero experience, but because they know them. Like, I love the women are getting into sports, but they'll say, well, you don't have any experience, and then you hire a woman who's never played in the NBA. She's never coached. She just now get into it, but I think it's because they want the variety of women and, and other things in sports to go, and I was like, okay, I'm all for that. But then you want us to have experience, but you won't give us experience. So I'm, I'm finding out a lot of politics involved. and But I love coaching. I want to coach in college 
and the pros just to get involved. But I'm just realizing there's a lot of stuff that goes along with it. And I'm just fighting my way through it and see if I can get through. Yeah. You know, I think it's going to be interesting um, this year in college basketball because, well, of course, Walter McCarty is in his second year at Evansville. And, you know, I'm sure that was a big – he coached for several years in the NBA as an assistant. Yeah, yeah, in Boston. Yeah. So, you know, it's probably quite an adjustment going back to college and all the rules and this and that. But It's not when you know the game. When you know the game, it's really not an adjustment. It's basically you realizing how to adjust – adjusting it accordingly and making it work it's it's really not hard buddy it's like the problem is coaches don't don't adjust and and if you ever notice a good coach what does he do he makes adjustments bad coaches what do they do they don't make adjustments (laughs) the game had the game hadn't changed in 60 years i was just thinking though from the the compliance standpoint because it's like i mean and I'm a lawyer, and I would try to do everything by the book. But these NCAA rules are so strict that if you sneeze the wrong way, oh, they can yeah. slap you with a violation. Yeah. So that's the thing. I was thinking more of, of in the uh, in the coaching scheme once you get started. But yeah, the rules are definitely different. Yeah, and I'm I'm definitely pulling for Patrick Ewing at Georgetown. I you know he had to do some rebuilding, but this is a, be his third year, so I'm hoping he has a a good year this year and but Vanderbilt hired Jerry Stackhouse mm-hmm. and I'm interested to see how that goes because of course Vanderbilt they uh, had Darius Garland the star freshman get hurt and of course he left but you know I didn't realize that Jerry had been coaching maybe for like a year or something with uh, he coached he was a behind the stands and Toronto then he went to the G League and coached for two years he won one year championship then he exactly then he went and got a coach there at that job. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping he does well. Obviously not being in Kentucky, but I, I like to see him do well. And you know, Penny Hardaway is at, at Memphis. So I like it when, uh, of course, a lot of Kentucky, former Kentucky guys are coaches. Travis Ford, St. Louis. John Pelfrey has been a coach at Alabama, an assistant at Florida. And now he's at, I think, Tennessee Tech this year. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to see you get a shot because, I mean, you know, you know the game, you have a good personality, the big smile. And I think you teach, like with the your academy, you teach people to do things the right way. I feel a very important thing for a coach because besides the basketball knowledge, you're, you're molding young men to be men and to be mature and how to handle difficult situations. So I'm definitely pulling for you. So, well – as luck would have it, I told you I was going to try to keep you on for an hour, and it's been an hour and a half. <laughs> well, it worked so, out. It worked out. Yeah. Anyway, I know we could talk a lot more on basketball, but I don't want to push you anymore. So let me give you your final thoughts. What do you want to say in closing about you know your time in basketball and also the Stamina Foundation? What I just think I want to say is um, just appreciate everyone who's always helped somebody else out. Life is going to pass us up, and what are you going to leave behind? Don't leave money. You don't have to leave money, but leave something, a legacy to help other people be happy. I think that's the biggest thing. So whoever's out there listening, make sure you guys give somebody a hug and be nice to somebody. Hopefully our world will be better and you'll be better for it. Definitely words to live by. So Derek, I really appreciate you coming on. You know, I I said, you know, I'll help get the foundation book in the school system. So offline, I'll help you with that. And of course, with my job in uh, Central Florida, we do a lot with the school system in um, the Melbourne, Brevard County area. So I'll try to help you out there. And, you know, I really appreciate you coming in and uh, taking the time. A lot of words of wisdom. 
which is greatly appreciated. For everyone who's listening, please make sure to follow Derek on Instagram at at Derek L. Anderson. Follow his website at DerekAndersonWorks.com. There's a lot going on there. And of course, check out the Stamina Foundation at StaminaFD.com. Right. So definitely check that out. You know, if you want to make a contribution to a great cause that makes a, a big impact on the lives of the youth who need it, this is a great way to get involved. So once again, Derek, I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll stay in touch and go cats. Go cats, buddy. Have a go. All right. You too. Thanks for coming. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was a really awesome interview with Derek Anderson. I want to thank him again for coming on the show. As you can tell, Derek's a really cool guy with a lot of good things going on. I knew I'd love to talk basketball with him, especially being a big UK and NBA fan. But as you heard, he has a real passion for helping the kids through the Stamina Foundation. And uh, I encourage you that if you are in the Kentucky area, especially in Louisville, to check that out. If you're looking for places to volunteer, donate some funds, or just support in any way, even uh, getting it in the schools, that's a really great thing. Those websites, again, are www.staminafd.com for Stamina Foundation and for Derek's just general stuff going on. You can go to www.derekandersonworks.com, and there's a lot of great information on those websites, so check them out. So once again, uh, we've had another great episode of Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney with our special guest, Derek Anderson. Like I said, I love talking basketball with him, all the stuff he has going on, but definitely check out his websites for Stamina Foundation and his other programs. And if you're a teacher out there, especially in Kentucky, and if you'd like to get this program into your school or curriculum, contact Derek. I contacted him one day and I think it was like maybe less than 10 minutes he responded back saying yeah he loved the idea of the podcast and wanted to come and help me out he he said wildcats stick together and you know what he was great to work with and as you can tell a great guest on the show so we're going to close the show hope y'all have a great week and we'll be back with another great episode of living the dream with ben and rodney next week have a good day thanks for listening to this episode find us online at benandrodney.com And follow us on Instagram at Ben Wilson Miami.